afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Uh, this weekend we acknowledged the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and Bishop David uh, J. Malloy of Rockford, chairman of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on International Justice and Peace, uh, released a statement, and I'll read a portion of it to you. It is with a heavy heart that we acknowledge the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This past year has seen the horrific consequences of Russian armed aggression on the sovereignty of Ukraine, its infrastructure, its economy, and most of all, on its people. The war in Ukraine has taken a brutal toll on innocent civilians, prompting millions to flee and seek asylum and shelter in other countries. Grieving family members on both sides have been left behind in the wake of the violence. And we continue to witness accelerations of military escalation, including the threat of deploying nuclear weapons. Uh, Well, he goes on to castigate Russia for uh, suspending its participation in the New START Treaty, which was the last of the nuclear weapons agreements between the U.S. and Russia. And so, uh, again, uh, Bishop Malloy uh, sees this as a very serious very serious matter. To help us understand what's at stake in Ukraine, this Russia-Ukraine battle, uh, we've asked uh, Professor Daniel Philpott to join us. He's Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame, the author of Religious Freedom in Islam, The Fate of a Universal Human Right in the Muslim World Today. His research focuses on religion and global politics. Uh, he focuses on especially reconciliation and religious freedom. He's also organized a symposium of theologians, therapists, church leaders, lawyers, and survivors of abuse to discuss the church's ongoing response to the crisis. And you can follow his work at, at Ark of the Universe. That's A-R-C, arcoftheuniverse.info. Dan, good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Al. It's always a great pleasure to be on. Let's, let's go to this. I saw a statement from... Uh, uh, Vitislav Shevchuk, who is the uh, mm-hmm. spiritual leader... Uh, of uh, Russians, excuse me, Ukrainians, and uh, yes. he he said he made a statement which I'm looking for it right now, but it's it's to the effect that two thirds or so, or maybe more, of Ukrainians uh, are going to be suffering from trauma as a result of this as we yes. go into the second year. Yeah. And that's you're talking about a whole basically a whole eighty percent. There it is. I was looking for that number. Eighty percent of Ukrainians need help with trauma. Thankfully, they're calling on priests first. But still, that's that's virtually the entire population. Yeah, it is, it is extraordinary. I mean, it's just uh, uh, an outcome of the the brutal uh, character of the war. It's just a blatant um, invasion of a people with a common good, and um, now they're experiencing massive. Uh, where they've experienced massive uh, death tolls and seeing the coffins of lo- loved ones uh, yeah. um, come back home. And uh, and then there's the refugees, the humanitarian suffering, the power outages, and all that is, uh, yeah, a very uh, traumatic thing for a people to uh, to experience. Um, you uh, addressed the American Academy of Catholic Artists and Scholars uh, earlier this year uh, on this question of the common good. Uh, in the just war tradition. What what did you say? Well, yes. I mean, in thinking about the justice of the war, um, I think a lot of the analyses one reads, I think it doesn't quite get to the heart of 
what it is that's at stake, why the invasion was so cruel, than what it is that we're defending. And I think the best answer lies in Catholic thought, which is the notion of of the common good, Mm -hmm. that uh, a people, and I mean a a collective people, um, possesses a kind of good from their ongoing association of cooperation. We might might call it civic friendship. Um, Over time, over history, they share in the project of governing themselves and uh, providing for the good of the people. And there's a kind of bond that forms. And I think we can call that uh, bond the, the common good. And to me, that's the real uh, moral uh, principle that underlies the just war theory and, uh, and international law, which says that you cannot invade another people. Well, why exactly not? I mean, after all, what if you could invade and, you know, provide better governance or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Well, it's wrong because you're, you're invading a people that has a kind of um, uh, tr- tradition and a kind of um, so, so bond among themselves of you know, being a kind of a shared shared entity, a nation, a nation with a history. And that makes them, you know, gives them a kind of right to uh, to govern govern themselves. And, and then that's really what you're um, violating when you when you invade somebody. Would you compare Russia's invasion of Ukraine to Nazi Germany's invasion of Poland or Iraq's invasion of Kuwait? Sure, I would. Yeah, it um, is that kind of violation of the international order yeah. and of the international principles that involves, you know, blatantly, um, you know, invading another another people, another nation, and then, you know, de- in a sense, denying its existence. And by the way, that's what's happening with Russia. If you look at their ideology, if you look at their speeches, both of those of Putin and of uh, Patriarch Kirill, yeah. um, they essentially deny that Ukraine exists as a nation, as a people. You know, at best, they're a kind of uh, folkloric tradition within Russia. And so you, if you deny the existence of a people, then... Well, it's really not an invasion at all. You're just, right. you know, performing a kind of, uh, you know, putting out some fires in, in the domestic realm or something. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's, uh, people, Ukrainians that I have met have a very strong sense of being Ukrainian. I mean, so I, I don't know what, how they could, what, how they would argue that uh, there's no sense of peoplehood there. Uh, yes, so that's right. You know, let me ask I, you about people like uh, John Mearsheimer, who's part of the realist school, who believes that, uh, you know, what the the common good is uh, uh, not what's at stake here, but Russia's right. invasion was legitimate, it was understandable, because uh, they have a legitimate concern uh, of the West, uh, NATO, uh, European Union, United States, uh, coming into its sphere of influence, and they have a right to protect their sphere of influence. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the realist tradition in international relations thought looks at um, international politics in terms of the competition for power, the dynamics that come from that. And they think that certain iron laws are, sort of arise from that. So one is that if you provoke a, a, a great power sphere of influence, it's going to produce a kind of counter-reaction. Right. It's kind of like a Newtonian law of physics, action, counter-reaction. Yeah. Well, the problem is, though, from a moral standpoint, from a justice standpoint, it just begs the question, well, why should Ukraine be thought of as part of Russia's sphere of influence? 
Well, that's exactly the problem of Russia denying that Ukraine has a common good as as a nation. I mean, when Russia's way of interpreting its sphere of influence is to say, this is not really a people, this is ours. And so... You know, if 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 the claim is that Russia is being provoked, well, provoking what? Well, it's this, you know, basically unjust claim in the first place. Yeah. So yeah. there's this funny logic by saying that it's really the pro- the fault of the West and kind of, you know, poking the bear, and um, but. You know, the, the bear's claims are really the, the problem in the first place. Uh, what do you make of the, the claim that uh, there are uh, Russian sympathizers in the populations of Donbass and Luhansk in the eastern re- regions of Ukraine? They're culturally Russian. Yeah. Uh, what do you make of that? Sure. So I'm I'm basing my argument on the claims of a nation and its self-determination. And so that kind of naturally raises the question, well, what about parts of the nation that, um, you know, may not identify with the whole? And and I do think that, in fact, that there are some cases where secession or, um, you know, some kind of federal autonomy or something for a people with a different identity can be justified. Um, However, I think that it needs to be done through a legal process needs to be done through a referendum. Mm. I think it should probably, a, a decision of that weight should be determined by a supermajority, not just a bare majority. And, and it has to be done with respect for minorities. Well, you know, reliable polls have been taken of Donbass and the Luhansk, Luhansk and um, in fact, the, those people do not want to, to leave Ukraine, yeah. even though many of them are kind of ethnic Russians. Um, they want to be governed by Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Now, the one area where it's a little bit different is Crimea. Mm-hmm. And uh, now there, now there, Russia uh, took over Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. Um, now, admittedly, the the, uh, the vast majority of those residents would like to be part of Russia, and I think that could you know be part of a peace settlement. But again, it has to be done peacefully through a referendum and sure. through a um, you know a just process. But you know, I could see a future of you, of Crimea joining Russia. Mm-hmm. What do you make uh, Farid Zakaria, uh, the political uh, journalist uh, at CNN, pointed out that? We're one year into Russia's naked aggression against Ukraine, and it's become clear that neither side is strong enough to win the war nor weak enough to sue for peace. The conflict has settled into a stalemate. Uh, Then he presents evidence to support that position. Um, do Do you think that we are in a stalemate right now? Yeah, I think Farid's got a lot of uh, insights. I admire him as a as a thinker. He's actually an old friend from uh, graduate school. Oh, okay. And, um, yeah, yeah, no, a very good guy. I, um, you know, I, th- I think he's right, and he talks. I, I do think we have to think about a, a peace settlement, what a peace settlement could involve, but we have to look at it through the principles of justice. Mm-hmm. Now. I think Farid is right to say that, you know, Russia would have to leave Donbass and Luhansk, would have to leave the areas that it, that it invaded, um, and that would, is part of justice. Um, now, perhaps as part of the deal, we could imagine um, Crimea, you know, maybe being more negotiable. But again, I think that, it, as Farid says, it would have to be done through, a, you know, kind of an internationally supervised referendum and, and so forth. And you know, maybe there would be a deal there. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have that right now. But, you know, and Farid rightly says we should continue to support um, Ukraine. But as the stalemate continues, one can hope that both sides would see that there is a stalemate. And um, if it could be done under the terms of justice, perhaps a uh, 
settlement could be uh, attained. Yeah, no, that, that, I understand what you're saying. Um, we've got only about uh, 45 seconds left here. Uh, do you, the American people uh, are notorious for losing interest in conflicts of this sort. Yes, um, yes. How do you think it, it's faring so far after a year? Well, it, there are some cracks in the American people's uh, support, and we do see some, you know, factions of um, of the Republican Party yeah. and some voices at home kind of calling it into doubt. But I still think the support is pretty solid, and um, we should continue to provide support. But maybe that's all the more reason why maybe the day will come soon where, um, you know, a, a compromise in a, in a, a settlement is in yeah. the offing. Dan, thanks so much. Uh, people can get his article, What is at Stake in Ukraine, at arcoftheuniverse.info.